Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are my interviews with the composer for A Haunting in Venice, Hildur Gunadottir, the CEO of the Agatha Christie estate and the great-grandson of Agatha Christie and executive producer James Pritchard the production designer, John Paul Kelly, and the cinematographer, Harris Zambar Lucas. We hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at a haunting in Venice. Hercule Poirot, I've found something. I've looked at it from every which way. I am the smartest person I ever met, and I can't figure it out, so I came to the second. You are up to something, my friend. I've seen a million of these so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Come with me to a seance. Spot the con I can't. Detective, you are here to discredit me, but I can talk to the dead. I'd give all I have to hear my daughter's voice. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. Listening. I am being joined right now by Academy Award winning composer Hilder Gunadottir. Hilder, how are you today? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. It's so lovely to see you again. I remember seeing you um, when you were in New York for uh, TAR during New York Film Festival. And um, I saw you at Critics' Choice for uh, Women Talking. You and Sarah were there together. Um, I, I just love seeing lately just this uh, new wave in your career. You're getting so many project offers. And, you know, in this particular instance, you get Kenneth Branagh, who calls you on the phone and says, I want you to come be a part of this project with me. What What was it like? coming on board and initially meeting uh, Kenneth? Oh, it was so wonderful. I'm, I'm such a big fan of his, and, I, and I, it was just so such an honor to get invited to uh, to do this film with him because he's just such a brilliant and, and versatile uh, actor and, and director, I think. And, and um, I really love how unafraid he is to, to dive into so different things you know it feels like you know nothing is nothing is above or beneath him you know he's he's uh you know he's he's as happy to tackle like the you know the big shakespeare mountains as he is at, at tackling you know the the volunteer tv movies you know which <laughs> which are more you know uh, um more for the common the common right. audience, let's say. And I just I just love that about him. I think he's such a he's such a wonderful person, such a such an open and, and generous and, and uh just lovely, lovely human being. And and uh, and as a as a director, you know, he's 
fantastic to work with because he has such a he ha- he's so good at his craft you know he has mm-hmm. such clear ideas about what it is that he's doing and what he what he wants to achieve and and like how he how he envisions his project you know there's such clarity in in in, in the way that he is able to ex- express that but but at the same time, he's very open and generous in the way that he, you know, in, invites you in. And, and, you know, so he has these general ideas. And then he says, like, you know, and, and over to you here, you take this information and do what you want with it, you know. And uh, that's lovely. It's really just, it was just a fantastic working process. It was really, really lovely. That's great. Well, when he communicates to you that this is a whodunit, but set within the genre of horror, how do you, knowing what uh, the sound of a whodunit film should typically sound like versus what a horror film score should typically sound like, how do you then merge those two genres together to create what you've created for A Haunting in Venice? Mm. Well, the the great thing is, well, the great thing that <laughs> I guess the, the, the good and the bad thing is that I, I really grew up with this genre. So I, I grew mm-hmm. up reading uh, crime novels and detective novels, and my whole family is, is uh, <laughs> they're all total detective novels uh, above. So, so my mother read about one Agatha Christie a day when she was pregnant with me, like the whole <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's literally in my blood, and 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 as soon as I started to read these um these these uh, uh, novels myself, you know, I it's it's so wonderful when you're reading, you you really get to set the pace and the scenario and and the whole surrounding your yourself, you know, and 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 uh, um. So I have very strong ideas about what I think a whodunit should, should yeah. sound like. And to me, I'm very, I'm very conventional in that sense. Like I, I don't think you should be tampering with this genre at all. I think you should just let it be right. what it is. You know, you're creating that sense of tension, <laughs> unease, mystery, foreboding. It, yeah. it does play well into the horror genre. Is there like a particular standout track? that you composed here that you would want to draw listeners' uh, ears to, to say, you know what, this is a track that I'm particularly proud of from this score? Yes, absolutely. My favorite piece of music is really uh, in the big reveal. Mm -hmm. It's a track that's going to be called Confession on the the release. And and for me, that's really... um, I really loved writing that track, and it's a, it's a long track. It's like a nine minute or eight nine minute um, violin suite, really. So it's a solo violin and and um, and chamber orchestra, and and it's like this long drawn out atonal um, uh, piece that that um, that I, I really enjoyed uh, um, working on. And uh, the beautiful thing is that I. It, it pretty much is exactly as I wrote it originally because I wrote this music before before they started editing. So so, mm. so it's really like a standalone piece of music that, that we mm-hmm. then, whereas as many of the pieces that I wrote for the film were I, I wrote before they um, started editing, just with his uh, guidelines in mind. And, and this is the piece that really got to stay in its in its full form throughout the whole mm-hmm. scene pretty much. And and so that we only added one bar to the edit, so pretty much it's exactly as I as I wrote it, and and um, and it's just it was really 
fun to 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 get to work in that way to get to write this piece that's really just a piece of music and it sits exactly in the you know as as it is in the in the film and 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 to to me this is kind of what what I want what I want this genre to uh, to sound like Sure, sure. Is that like a, a typical process of yours that you prefer writing the music before you see footage? Or I mean, like you, you I remember hearing this, that you did this on Joker, which you won the Oscar for as well. Yeah. So is this just a, a way that you typically like to work? Yes, this is definitely my preferred way of working, because I think in this way, I think in this way, the music and the film can grow together, you know, mm-hmm. so, so. So in this way, um, you know, both can influence each other rather than the if, if you have a if you have a finished edit that already has all the pacing and the uh, and the and the tempo settings and most likely will have like a temp score that's a mix of all kinds of different music, you know, that you then have to try to replace. You know, that's a it's just a, um, I find that personally less satisfying to work in that way because. I think in, when, you, when you come in earlier, you have more of a chance of being a bigger part of the dialogue of what the story that's being told is, and 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 the music can kind of grow more naturally into into that process, and the film can grow into the music. So so you have this sort of like um, you have this kind of back and forth dialogue, but of course this process takes about you know seven times longer probably sure. as, as the as getting a finished edit and and you know it's more time consuming and it's definitely not for everyone and I completely respect that and you don't get any more paid you know even though you spent way way longer on the on the project but but to me it's it's a more it, it feels like a more natural dialogue to to for, for the way that I that I work because I you know and then of course you know, in, in this ping pong process, there will also be scenes that that you know I'm working directly to picture, and there will also be moments where it's like high pressure, and you all of a sudden have to finish like this amount of music, and and you know very short time because of a new cut and all of this. <clears throat> but <clears throat> but to me, the preparation is starting from the same point. Then it kind of just unfolds uh, uh, more naturally. Yeah. Well, Hilder, thank you so much uh, for your time here today. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure everyone is going to be looking forward to hearing not just your score from this, but Joker 2 and beyond. So thank you very much once again. You're a wonderful talent. Thank you. Thank you. Mama. Felicia. What is happening? You can't trap us here. Somebody is dead. No one shall leave this place until I know who did it. A ghost killed her. There must be a rational answer for all of this. Just admit that you are up against something bigger than you. Hi, Matt. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, James. Uh, James, do you prefer uh, JP? James Pritchard, what do you prefer here? James is fine for me. Perfect. Well, I am speaking with James, the CEO of the Agatha Christie estate and the great grandson of Agatha Christie, executive producer for Haunting in Venice. 
James, I, I got to ask, first and foremost, Kenneth Branagh now adapting three of Agatha Christie's uh, works here, uh, most recently with A Haunting in Venice. Just what has that creative journey been like uh, for you, the collaboration? And when you look back on just the lasting legacy and seeing how um, that legacy of uh, Agatha's is being carried over into this modern uh, generation, like, uh, like just what are your thoughts and feelings upon that? Um, well, it's an extraordinary thing um, to work with with something like my great grandmother's body of work. It is a privilege. It's it's humbling. It's it's quite scary at times. <laughs> um, you don't want to mess up. Um, but you know, it's people like Ken Branner who bring it alive and and make it all happen and make it work. And um, it is, I guess, a testimony to my great grandmother's talent that people of the talent of Ken Branner want to work on her work. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know what are we 50 years almost after her death um but it is it's a very extraordinary heritage to have um but it is immense fun and um a real joy yeah especially like when you set the benchmark the way that she has within this genre i mean even other whodunits that i've seen over recent years have alluded to her works of being a great inspiration upon them as well so uh, like her her legacy is just everlasting and has gone far beyond just these three individual films so that that's pretty incredible i would say going beyond that though um i do want to know um like what does the future ultimately look like um is kenneth Branagh gonna continue to keep doing these adaptations the same way that james cameron's gonna keep doing avatar movies like <laughs> what's the what's the game plan um, I'm a great believer in baby steps, so mm -hmm. take one step at a time. And the first thing is that people like and enjoy this movie. In fact, that people go and see this movie. Um, right. If 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 they do that, I hope there will be more movies. Um, if Ken wants to make them, and 20th Century want to make them, um, I think I think we want to make them. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, but let's hope that this one is a success first, and then we'll get the the privilege of making another one. Of course. Now, how, how did this all start? Was it like an easy yes for you when it's Kenneth Branagh who's asking for permission or was there a feeling out process? Or like, how did this all come to be? Where, at which point are we on? Are we on from the very beginning or from the haunting in Venice beginning? I would say, let's say from the very beginning. And how has that evolved? So, I mean, the, the first conversation, you know, right at the very beginning, which I think might have been back in something like 2010, Mm -hmm. uh, was Simon Kinberg um, met with my father and and you know discussed making um, another series of movies. Um, yeah, that then took whatever it was seven years to turn into Murder on the Orient Express. Right, uh, during which time you know Ken came on board, and I guess during which time I took over from my father. So um, I think you know the lesson from that is films take a long time um but but quite often are worth it um you know ken i think first was brought on board um came on board as as a director um and then it was a little later that um he suggested that he may want to play Poirot. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know since i guess you say the rest is history um yeah you know i think it is a privilege that it's an immense whatever you want to call it um that ken uh, wants to make these movies. Ken, I imagine, has an awful lot of offers. Um, the fact that he wanted to make these movies, the fact that he still enjoys making these movies is yeah. a great testimony to my great-grandmother's stories. 
No, you can feel that passion and love coming through in each one of them, that's for sure. What I particularly love about Haunting in Venice, though, is how much it takes that whodunit genre, but it mixes in the elements of horror into it to give it that kind of unique identity. Are there other Agatha Christie stories that you feel could also pull different genres in besides just your typical whodunit to create something that would give off that same unique effect? I think the thing about my great grandmother's stories is um, that they they lend themselves to all sorts of adaptations. I mean, mm-hmm. the horror element is really is created by Michael Green, the writer, and and Ken as director. Um, it isn't necessarily inherent in the story. Um, Halloween party, as in itself, is not really a horror story. Um, mm-hmm. I did write, I think, horror stories. I would say, and then there were none. It's actually. Um, is is pretty much a horror story in itself. And she wrote about the supernatural separately. Um, but what actually we've done with Halloween Party is is move it on. And that sort of came in the first instance, I think, from Michael Green, the writer, who wanted to do something different with the third movie, having done two very traditional, pretty straight, pretty faithful adaptations in Murder mm-hmm. on the and Death on the Nile. He felt that um, we should try and surprise our audience. So he he wanted to take a lesser story. He wanted to take a different story and do something um, perhaps more creative with it. So whereas Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile were pretty straight adaptations, this has kind of taken Halloween Party as its inspiration. And the key thing he's done is add that layer of genre, that layer of horror, suspense. And I think that will surprise, but I hope delight our audience. Yeah, well, it certainly surprised and delighted me, that's for sure. I mean, like you were saying, it's, it sounds like as long as the essence, the uh, core of what uh, your great-grandmother intended with her stories is intact, there it lends itself over, like you said, to all types of different interpretations, uh, genre manipulation, wh- whatever they can do, essentially, to freshen it up for a new audience. And I think that's just very exciting and a very unique way to approach uh, these stories that people uh, – are very familiar with because she's had such a lasting impact on all other uh, writers who have come after her. Everyone owes such a great debt to her work. As we wrap up, I'll just say that uh, I absolutely loved this movie and I really do hope that audiences do get a chance to go see it and I hope for more adaptations to come. Great. So, thank you. Very much. Nice to meet Take you. Take care. You were saying... Something in this house tried to kill me. Don't look at me like I'm a suspect. We're old friends. Every murderer is somebody's old friend. JP Kelly, thank you so much for taking a moment here to join me today to talk about your work on A Haunting in Venice, sir. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, thank you. I hope you are too. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yes, no, definitely. Thank you so much. I'm getting ready for the fall film festival season. Haunting in Venice was one of the last titles I got to squeeze in before all that madness begins. And I'm glad that I did because uh, this is probably my favorite of the three films that Kenneth Branagh has uh, worked on so far. And 
to my uh, knowledge and understanding, this is your uh, first time also coming aboard these uh, particular films. How, how did you and Kenneth initially link up, meet each other, and start discussing you coming on board uh, Haunting in Venice? Yeah, well, he, he uh, you know, from my first meeting with him to me starting was a matter of days, you know, so um, he, how he... Wow. How he got to me, I'm not quite sure. You know, he, it, it, I mean, generally people find me by having seen my body of work that I've worked on yes. before, like in it, um, a, a little bit of that. And then also people saying, oh, you know, you're going to get on, you know, because it's as much, it's a, a very intense relationship um, between uh, between everyone in on, on a film. So you have to make sure that people are going to gel and you, you can kind of work that out pretty quickly. So um, so we, we hit it off and uh, within days I was working on it. I think we, we realized really quickly that, it was unlikely we were going to get to film this in Venice, um, because um, of the complications of the of the script. So we we wanted to get to Venice really fast to realize mm -hmm. and work out whether we were going to have to do it on on stage. And we decided that that was the case. So then I had to get back to London and get a massive team in place very very quickly to be. But, able no, but, to but, but I got to ask you though, you got exterior shots of boats on waters, and I I, I see buildings that clearly look like Venice. So. Yeah, was that well, shot in Venice or somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we we shot for one week in Venice at the very end of the shoot. So, uh, okay. so all of the, all of the beginning of the film and all of the end of the film is all mm -hmm. shot in Venice. So so where Poirot lives and where he walks through the streets and goes through a market and all of that, we yeah. shot at a location in the way that you would traditionally shoot on location. And um, but then from the time he arrives at the palazzo, so we built the exterior. Of, of the palazzo where their boats could um, gondolas could pull up and then they could enter into the cabana of the inside um, um, um arrivals area of a, of a of a palazzo we we built all that in pinewood then um we also then built all the other floors of the palazzo and the piano mm -hmm. and so on and the bedroom floors and where the seance happens and and then we also built a a very large exterior set um, at a scale model of one third scale, which is probably two tennis court size um, of the exteriors um, so that we could have waves crashing against the building and, and shutters slamming against the the, the windows and and, uh, and rain banging against the the building and you know so so um it was it was um it, it, that was that was built as a big exterior set so um so so yeah so so it was it was a, mi a mixture of the two but certainly in terms of the palazzo that was all studio based that's incredible. I mean, the the way that production designers are able to blend uh, both uh, stage and exteriors and uh, on location, uh, it, it just like boggles my mind of how seamless that can come across sometimes where you don't even know the difference. So it's a credit to you, you and your team that you guys are able to create that kind of seamless experience for all of us. Um, I do want to ask, what went into creating the garden uh, that is featured in this movie? Uh, can you tell me a little bit about about that? Yeah, I mean, there, there there is a kind of precedence for that. I mean, obviously, my starting point with with any fiction is is to is to find the historical reference points for it. So, you know, finding out exactly how these palazzos were built, when they were built, how the layers of history, um, you know, it, it lays on top of its each other's and so on, mm -hmm. is the key to the storytelling. Obviously, th this didn't take much imagination to work out that actually Venice is a really good reimagined location for this for this storytelling you know it, yes it, it, it these palazzos are extraordinary you know they they have layer and layer of history you know we we imagined ours was maybe built on an old monastery or something to give us another feather in our cap to play with and um, where we could have cloisters and secret corridors and stuff to go around the back you know but 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 essentially we tried to base it on a real 
a, a, a real palazzo, you know, so the structure of a, a large piano noble and a second floor above it and, and the Cavana basement was, is pretty much the layout of every palazzo. And the gardens on the roof, again, gardens are such a premium in, 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 in Venice that, um, um, a, again, that is, is quite true to to um, um, you know what you would find in Venice. We never saw anything vaguely like what I designed because mm -hmm. I kind of wanted the idea of it having almost like a mausoleum type kind of quality to it. Um, and but the principle of a garden off a kind of a loggia um, uh, it, it, side to um, a, a top floor of a palazzo was was kind of based on 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 a reality, but not any particular example. And um, you know that was really where the storytelling had to come first, really, because of the way the characters move around and, and you know these different spaces sure so you got all these interiors which allows for uh dp harris uh zambarka zambar lucos i i hope i'm saying as correctly as i can yeah. uh, <laughs> great degree of control over the lighting of those interiors as a result of which but this is a very dark movie there's a lot of shadows tell me a little bit about uh, the conversations that you and him have about you know Po the possibility of some of the details of your work being lost in those shadows. I, I don't mean that as a knock necessarily, but what is that collaboration like where you're you're trying to honor the director's vision, but yet you're still responsible for all this detail and creating these immersive uh, on, uh, well, not on location, sorry, uh, on stage sets. Yeah, yeah, no, you're 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 absolutely right. It 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 is a it is a real challenge. I mean, particularly um, in this case because. Um, Ken was very keen on the on the sets being um, composite sets with with uh, there were there were three sixty sets. There was no floating mm -hmm. walls. There was no green screens. There was no floating ceilings. You know, you'd very often wow. get light from above, and you quickly mm -hmm. you 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 very often light through windows at night. You know, as moonlight. And um, but again, because it's a stormy night, we had real rain slashing against those windows the entire movie. Um, and every time we shot on the stage, so it it made lighting the sets really difficult. You know, so yeah. but it is an organic process. So we we tried everything. We tried candles. We tried um you know um, um flambos. We tried um you know every, every possibility of of how the sets could be lit. But of course, this building was meant to have been abandoned. You know, so suddenly for it to be beautifully lit, like a, a you know the Phantom of the Opera or something, was just didn't feel right you know so and I, I think Ken quite rightly felt the candles created a warmth that he really didn't want in the film as well so so we kind of came up with an idea um, after playing a lot with lights of of maybe the Rowena who owned the building who was an opera singer of her maybe having brought stage lights kind of period 1940 stage lights from the opera um, to to light this party that she was throwing, um, but that allowed for kind of harder shadows and kind of um, a, a a kind of a less conventional uh, a period lighting, I suppose, of the set. So we so we essentially used electric light, you know, which which would have been the case in the palazzos. I mean, a lot of them, you know, still weren't electrically lit at that time until after the war, you know, but but most of them had some sort of light or electric light running through them at that point so but you know it was it was kind of a suck it and see really you know we we um you know i i worried the film was going to be too dark you know obviously you know ken and you know harris can reassure constantly that you know the you know with with cameras and and the detail that they can pick up now that and you sit in a cinema you you still see that detail even despite the kind of palette being kind of pulled to quite a dark space but i think um yeah ken ken felt um that the a a a world that you had a lot of dark shadows and corners where things could be hidden and people could hide and felt right for the movie. 
Awesome. Well, your work definitely still shown uh, through the uh, the darkness here. It's, it's really, it's really good work, I have to say. So thank you so much for the time today. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. Really a pleasure talking to you. Uh, no one shall leave until I find if the living have been killed by the dead. You have been hiding here all this time. Who are you talking to? All right, I am being joined right now by cinematographer Harris Zambar Lucos. Uh, Harris, how are you today? Very well, Matt. How are you? Doing really well. Thank you so much. I believe, if my math is correct, this is your ninth collaboration with uh, Kenneth Branagh. You've now shot all three of his Agatha Christie adaptations here. And I got to ask, first and foremost, I know that people can infer and just based on the trailer or when they see the movie, they'll be able to put it in their own words. What makes a haunting in Venice different than the previous two? But I want to hear in your words, what direction were you guys going for to visually make a haunting in Venice distinct from the previous two Agatha Christie adaptations? Well, Matt, first of all, it's a lesser known story. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, there are less expectations than when you're making some of the better known kind of Orient Express or Nile kind of novels. So that in itself um, allows you to delve into uh, a story that doesn't have, in, in not having expectations, you can create aspirations uh, for yourself as a filmmaker. And, mm-hmm. and in this case, what was really the the, the true haunting here in in my interpretation of it, and most, you know, as a collaborator, and uh, all of us together, was the nature of the crime. It's such a horrific crime that's um, uh, uh, committed that it, yeah. it haunts the very soul of Poirot. And it, and it really breaks down his perception of what's real and what's not real and what is, what is you know, um, his, his own spiritual belief, I believe. And in, in that respect, um, we really wanted to delve into the human condition in a very, very intimate way. And um, previous, kind of a, a lot of Agatha Christie was, uh, in, you know, the genius of her, her, her writing was that uh, in her time period, she traveled extensively when pe- people could not travel extensively. So you, she would take you to places as a reader um, where you, you couldn't go at that time period. And at the same time, she delved into morality. She delved into kind of almost this cathartic, uh, crime solving that was from a really classic period, and you know, no different than the tragedies of ancient Greece in that respect. That you you just delved into a crime, you know, you delved with it in the in the in the kind of experience of it with such passion that you had a cathartic process out of it. I think in this case, it is more akin to that in a way, um, that truer sense of a uh, uh, kind of a a cathartic, horrific tragedy than it is. The, the kind of travelogue aspect which um, Agatha Christie was was giving to the world. And again, she made this later in, you know, this is in her the latter part of her writing as well. So everything's condensed and simplified and, um, and, 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 and more true to the, the, the human condition. And, and mm-hmm. I think th- those were our interpretations in a way, and those were our decisions in the filmmaking. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you talk to me a little bit on the uh, tech side of things, the equipment that you use to shoot this on, camera, lenses, that sort of thing? 
So uh, uh, one of the decisions we made was kind of from a visual point of view is we wanted to be true to the time period in terms of the lighting and that mm -hmm. this would have been a very dark film, the kind of candles, the kind of lamps. We, 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 we studied all of that and we, we used a lot of that in our lighting. And to do that, we needed to kind of reevaluate how we shot this. And, and the Sony Venice 2 had come out with a 3200 ASA uh, light sensitivity. Yeah. And one of the things that has uh, in the past with low lit films been um, kind of a standout kind of procedure is to use fast lenses. So you shoot at a T, like famously um, uh, Kubrick used those T.9.1 uh, you know, lenses. And the depth of field is so narrow, but barely people move. Or, or, mm -hmm. or, or, or in, even in modern interpretations, in modern digital films at 800 SA, you, you, you're dealing with one eye in focus, one, uh, one out. And one of the photographic kind of things in, in the way that we've shot things with Ken is that we, we like not too much, not Citizen Kane depth of field, but enough depth of field that both eyes are always in focus, that it's not, it's, you're not, you're not, you're, the, the audience isn't struggling to kind of engage uh, with the characters. So the 3200 ASA um, camera meant that we could shoot at a T4. Mm -hmm. um, in these extreme low light levels that were uh, basically at lower light levels than the human eye. Like our cameras saw a slight bit more than what the human eye um, could do. And that created a great environment for the actors where they felt terrified. They really felt like they were in this haunted palazzo. And, and of course, you can make judgments and you are in what you see by eye. Like the nuances of should this be a slight bit darker or, a, or should the, you know, you, you're really seeing it. You're not recreating it in yeah. a way. You're, 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 it's a live situ uh, form of, um, uh, of lighting. And, and, and that was really wonderful um, uh, to do. Given the time period uh, and also to given the nature of the horror elements of this movie, I'm, I'm curious to know, has there been any talk whatsoever of ever releasing a black and white version of this film? No, and I don't think we, if we wanted to do a black and white version of this film, I think we would have done it from the outset. Sure. I think, I, I, uh, I think in this particular story, the combination of black and white and, and, and color was the right approach to this film. Now, don't get me wrong, both Kenneth and I, we love black and white. We do it in a heartbeat anytime. Yeah. And I think we, we enjoy that format very much. But in this case, I think it would have not the slight use that we have made was enough. And, and we've always established that Poirot sees in black and white. That's how he yeah, okay. interprets things. And that's how he sees things. And that he has a clarity uh, that uh, uh, only kind of, in a way, I, I think it just, it, to me in that respect, it's, it's, it's like music without um, lyrics. It reveals itself in its, in its truest form. And, and, and that's what, for me, um, uh, uh, the black and white sequences have uh, in this case, and they are earned. And if it was mm -hmm. black and white all from the beginning, you would not have earned that right to, to, to see so, 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 so lucidly um, uh, at those moments where the final interrogation and um, uh, revelation of the crime is. 
maybe it makes it makes perfect sense to me but maybe it's just it had such a good impact on me that i'm like oh i wanted more of that so it's a testament to your work your collaboration harris thank you so much for your time today really really appreciate uh your work with kenneth and your work on this film and i hope you have a wonderful rest of your day thank you matthew lovely talking to you take care Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my behind-the-scenes interviews with Academy Award-winning composer Hildur Gutendottir, the CEO of the Agatha Christie estate and the great-grandson of Agatha Christie, and executive producer of the film James Pritchard, the production designer John Paul Kelly, and the cinematographer Haro Sembar-Lucos here on the Next Best Picture podcast for A Haunting in Venice. A Haunting in Venice opens exclusively in theaters on September 15th from 20th Century Studios. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For a $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.